The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. This person kept telling stories saying everybody who worked with me hated me. And I had sort of come to think that that must be true. And Anne got me to contact people as potential witnesses. And one person after another said, what do you mean that you thought we hated you? It was such a relief to realise that the world, as I'd been told it was, constantly in this undermining thing, Mm. it really undermines your sense of self. Hello listeners, I'm Kevin Poulter, and in today's episode I'm joined by not one, but two remarkable women. The first, founder of the Women's Equality Party, Catherine Mayer, describes herself as a journalist, politician, whatever, in her book Attack of the 50-Foot Women, and alongside her is a giant of the legal world, Dr. Anne Oliverius of McAllister Oliverius, the firm she established in 1996 after a career which has taken her from Yale to London via Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and the Washington office of Sherman and Sterling. Individually, each of these women has campaigned and fought for gender equality in work and society. Together, they have challenged the status quo through political and legal means, including a high-profile court case against Time magazine, and are fighting for a fairer, brighter, and more equal future for us all. The Hearing Catherine and Anne, thank you so much for meeting us. Um, It's a pleasure to meet you both. And uh, I'm also slightly on edge um, (laughs) with a journalist and politician uh, and an employment lawyer, uh, amongst other things. So um, bear with me if I stumble over anything, please. Uh, It's been known to happen in the past. So, uh, But but equally, um, holding the positions you do, uh, both as campaigners, politician, um, and uh, really advocates and ambassadors for the feminist movement, um, do you have to be careful as well about how you say things and how they can be interpreted or misinterpreted? I think there's always a danger in a soundbite culture of things being taken out of context. But, I mean, to to your introduction, um, I think I'm incredibly unscary. I've always been surprised (laughs) when people are frightened by me, but I think Anne is really scary and you're right to be frightened (laughs) of her. It's one of the reasons I love her. I might ask you to change places now, uh, (laughs) just to move on further away, but uh, I'm sure that's not true. Is that true? I don't think it's true. I don't see myself as scary at all, quite the opposite. Um, but in any event, I hear that and I'll have to try and be more friendly in the future, I guess. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, she's magnificent in meetings. But, you know, there, there have been various meetings that we have been in in the course of, a, you know, this long legal action that we took together where where I have been um, watching her and trying to keep my poker face while not knowing whether I wanted to laugh or cheer. <laughs> well, you've answered the first question really, which is how you two came to know each other. Um, was that through the, the case that we'll talk about in, in a moment? No, I was very lucky because I had um, worked at at Time magazine from um, 2004 into my until my involuntary exit in 2015. Mm. Um, but I actually came to Time magazine through knowing Anne's husband. Oh. Um, her husband, Jeff McAllister, who's the McAllister in McAllister Olivarius. Yes was actually London bureau chief at Time magazine when I was working for the German media and I was at that time the elected president of the Foreign Press Association in London and he and I met through the Foreign Press Association 
became friends and he tipped me off when there was a job as a senior editor going. So he didn't, he wasn't involved in, in hiring me, no. but he was actually... Led you, led you up the garden he, path. He led me, <laughs> yes, and, and has actually subsequently and completely unnecessarily apologised to me for everything oh. that happened at Time magazine as if it was his fault. Um, <laughs> but it did mean that, that I had known Anne as a friend mm. before any of this happened. And Jeff, when he left time went back into the law which he had originally been in the law but he should have made this maybe a four-way conversation in that case well except that he had to um we had to maintain very strict chinese walls with this um case and he was Mm. never involved in in the case um but it did mean that when this started happening to me Mm. and when i sort of began to confide in people it meant that i was in this incredibly lucky position of already knowing people who had who had a view and had quite yep. a clear view that what was happening was actionable and that's not something that that most people mm. will will have no you're absolutely right and and actually even in my work um similarly that people find it difficult to know who to come to so having that circle uh, around you and that support network i guess has helped in some ways um but there's also that fine line of uh, of mixing business and pleasure and (laughs) and risking a a friendship when when working together but looking at you both now it looks like that's only uh, solidified oh i think that's true indeed i must say my husband jeff McAllister. When he was recruiting for time and identified Catherine Mayer, um, he lobbied very hard behind the scenes to bring mm. her on board. And uh, he's not a political player, but I would say, with the exception of hiring Catherine, he felt so strongly, he'd done a lot of due diligence and felt that she yep. was just top of the class in mm. every respect. And he hasn't regretted that a day all the years that she was there. He was he had such pride that she had come to time because he loved yep. time and he wanted only the best for time. And so... Yep. That had to be Catherine. And you were there for a long time. Yeah, well, Um, I think that's one of the sad things about this story is that I did and do love time and still have some friends there. Mm. And um, Jeff Jeff was both part of my love for time because, you know, he was Mm. one of the great people there. And it was when I went there in 2004, it was before the... I, I was kind of in the very last flush of hiring before the great contraction started. But even when they did, it was a really impressive place to work. um, And it had very high ideals. And there were all these, you know, it was one of those places you went to work and you were excited Mm. by the kinds of conversations you had and the thinking that went on. Mm. And so um, for me, I guess one of the sad things and one of the things I still resist is having my whole time at time defined by the last years there because the last years there were absolutely, utter, uh, utterly miserable. Mm. But I had probably eight really good years there, maybe. Yeah. And, and uh, years of uh, promotion and progression. Um, mm. and, and so how did you first notice I feel like I'm interviewing you know myself now as a as a client. But how did you first notice that change? What what was it? Was it a, a, something overnight? Was it a slow progression? What what did you look? Were you looking for something? Was it something that presented itself to you? Because I, I get, I don't, I'm sure you do as well. And, uh, different people have different reactions or responses to things and, and perceptions around them as well. One of the things I realised in retrospect is that things were really much worse than I allowed myself to acknowledge 
for quite a long period of time. And that that is, in a way, I think one of the reasons that all people, but in particular women, sometimes um, put up with workplace mm. stuff that they shouldn't do. Mm. It's because it's a coping mechanism mm. that you you actually tell yourself it's not as bad as you're feeling it to be. Mm. Um, but my trouble, um, it's a very direct thing. It started, you can say that some of the roots were in changes higher up the, the mm. tree in time, but, but it all started when um, somebody came to London supposedly as my deputy and um, really from day one um, was not there to support me, but in, mm. but began to undermine me. Mm. And so it was that that process that was so incredibly wearing. But I, I also spent a very long time, or what it felt like a very long time, thinking that this was somebody who could be appeased and brought on side yeah. instead of understanding that, um, that this was never going to happen. Mm. Um, and then you sort of, when you realise that you are being shown, you know, in, you're being edged out in, in different ways, then I guess some of your energy goes into resisting being edged out mm. instead of ever really standing back and understanding mm. what's happening and what it's doing to you. But here I was very lucky too because, again, I suspect if I weren't a journalist and not just a journalist but a journalist who writes books, mm. I wouldn't be such an archivist. But I archived absolutely everything, as Anne knows. Um, I, I had um, enormously detailed notes, and um, I kept all of my emails mm. separately. And you know, I just saved everything. So it sounds like you're both a blessing and a curse as a client. <laughs> but she has a very, you know, perfect memory. So that also is a rare gift. And those people who have it, you love as a lawyer to have as a client. Yep. And you know, she was reliable. Her testimony was complete. She knew what she was about. She knew what happened, and she could be very particular about and it. And backs up with written records, which is one of the first things I always ask about, and, and I'm sure you do too. That it's so important uh, to, to have that what we call contemporaneous uh, evidence. Um, so yeah, yeah, fantastic. But it doesn't make it any better. That doesn't doesn't sort of resolve a situation uh, just by having that. You still have to go through that process. And how how because ultimately there was a redundancy. Um, yeah, yeah, there was a fraudulent redundancy. Yes, yes. I mean, sorry, I should put in inverted commas for the uh, for the listener. I would say um, also in terms of my perfect memory, one of the things that, you know, when I'm saying about coping mechanisms, I have a very good memory for dates, meetings, um, and, and associations between different things are also very helpful. Again, as a journalist, it means you can say, oh, I was in Scotland when this happened, or I was in Dublin when that happened or in one particularly notorious incident of discriminatory behavior i mm. was with david cameron in what <laughs> in in new york in our new york office when that happened but there was one way in which my memory was kind of faulty or my perception was kind of faulty and that was that in undermining me this person kept telling stories saying that um, everybody who worked with me hated me mm. and I had sort of come to think that that must be true mm. so one of the reasons that I was so glad to, that I took action I did so with real trepidation and Anne got me to kind of contact people as potential witnesses mm. and one person after another said you know what 
what do you mean that you thought we yeah. hated you? Yeah. There, you know, there were people who had been bruised. That there, there were, you know, there, mm. there were lots of bad things that happened to other people. It's not just yeah. me. Yeah. But um, and so. I'm not saying everybody sort of let me off the hook in terms of what I might have done for them because mm. they didn't. But um, but it really it was such a such a relief to realise that that it was that the world as I'd been told it was constantly in this undermining thing. Mm. It it I don't want to sort of overdo this and and um, but but it's it, I think it's like. An abusive relationship mm. might be in another way that it really undermines your sense of self. It really undermines your confidence, mm. but also just who you are. Mm. And so, as a healing process, almost one of the things that Catherine really demonstrates strongly is if you bring suit, you go forward with legal action. It does have you get in touch with the reality around you and where someone's been gaslighted, as Catherine was. Yep by this man, you know, she was able to then face into this. And as she went to people, she then got to terms with a very different reality, one where she was actually deeply respected, mm. where people really had wonderful experiences of mm. working with her that he had undermined and tried to plot out. And so it's a wonderful healing process to have to go through that, I think, for very many people. It is. It's really healing. Um, it's also, it's funny, though, because if you deal with it as I had done Partly by telling yourself it's not as bad as you think, but also by I'm a really good compartmentalizer. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that was right the way through the the, the legal action. It was very funny because people would come up to me who knew it was going on, and they'd yeah. say, "How are you?" Yeah. And yeah, I'd go, "Fine." fine. Why? <laughs> you know, I'd literally shut, lock, locked it away. And I guess one of the things that that will never be easy with that kind of legal action is that you have to go to the things that mm. you've locked away because they're mm. painful so yep. you really have to deal with this stuff and you you have to be strong and clearly through your career you've you've had to be a strong woman to 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 achieve what you've achieved and be so successful as you are but what you were describing just then sounds like something which is it's a manipulation it's sort of targeting a weakness perhaps or or it could be seen that way and certainly women in the workplace and men as well but who don't have that strength of personality might struggle a lot more than maybe even you did um, but don't have that strength to carry on to fight back to argue um, or even the financial resource to back that up as well. And, and how do they how, how do you suggest that those people work their way through this? I think that's a really good question which I also want Anne to answer from her perspective. but from mine, one of the things I have to be careful of is becoming a proselyte for telling hmm. all women that they should do what I did because, hmm. you know, there are so many ways in which I had advantages here. I had the advantage of being far along in my career. Yeah. So in a way, the risks were lower. Hmm. Um, you know, at the point where I was forced out, I was in my 50s. And so, you know, the problems I was going to have, it, it, that intensified the problems I might have in finding another job because mm. I was very senior and I was at an age where people don't necessarily want to employ yes. you again. In a sector specifically, uh, I would say as well, where it's even more difficult perhaps. Yes. So that made it, in terms of the, the, the damage of, of losing the job then, it made it worse. But on the other hand, it meant that I'd already had a really good career mm. and I already had resources and yeah. I already... Yeah. had you know this circle of, of acquaintance that was incredibly important and so I could take this decision because what you know is you know 
that you are going to be labeled a troublemaker and that, you know, even though however, however my case had turned out, mm. I knew that if it went public, that the perception would be potentially that I was the problem and mm. not the people who I was yeah. Yeah. bringing the action against. And it's like all of these things, you know, that are in the news now about Me Too, the people who mm. speak up about harassment, very often they're the ones who are blamed rather than the harasser. Yeah. So I knew, I knew the risks, but I could, t I could afford to take the risks. I could afford to take them mm. metaphorically mm. and I could also afford to take them literally. Yeah. And so that, that really means that I have to be careful about urging women who are more vulnerable than me, who are less well resourced, who have more, mm. more career ahead of them, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, it's been a great experience for me. I'm really glad that I did it. I'd really like to help people who want to do it to do it. This is always a tough question. We find, um, you know, generally uh, in terms of our law firm, we're located both in the States and in Britain. Mm. And we tend to get um, generally very high awards for the people we represent, particularly women. And so that's a good thing. One of the things using Catherine's, Catherine's case as an illustration, when she came to us, because we knew her work product, my husband had seen it for years. So there was no question in our mind about her. But at first, you know, her concern was people would shy away. Many do publicly, but it was really quite heartwarming to see the private calls that we had, particularly the man who had done such damage to Catherine. Matt McAllister had gone to Newsweek. And so at Newsweek, he didn't last very long there. And we also had a flood of phone calls, people saying, Terrible things have happened here yeah. also, yeah. but they're very hesitant. And it's always interesting to me that the news media is hesitant because they're writing stories about other cases all the time. Mm. And so you would think that they might particularly want to tell their own story, yeah. but it's not that way necessarily. But our experience is that once you come through this, these women are not in a bad place afterwards. They're highly employable again in mm. most cases. Mm. And they've got that self-integrity and dignity because they've fought for their dignity to say, no, you're not going to do this to me. And in the nicest way, they could back in there and go out and get good, if not better jobs. Yeah. And they're back in the game. So they're wonderful role models for other other people. And, and I think Catherine has done that. She's out you know, fighting the good fight, making good news, good stories all around town. Yeah. You know, one can only be proud of her. And I think, you know, her story is enhanced because she's fought and she knows how hard it can be, but she's also seen the amount of support, terrific support she's mm. had. And well, there was mm. something that, that um, I'm just laughing because I'm remembering <laughs> there was some moments of um, unexpected black comedy in this whole process. And my favorite one was Time does this annual listing of um, they choose uh, the person of the year sometimes it's one person yeah. and sometimes it's a category of people last year they they um chose whistleblowers yeah. um but but particularly they were honoring the the, the, me, the too, me too campaigners really yeah me too campaigners um and they managed to select two fantastic women as part of the their honorees for the year who were being represented by Anne at the same time as she was representing me. The, the, it's the University of Rochester. Yes, yeah, indeed. Right? Yes, Jessica Cantlon and Celeste Kidd. Mm. And so that was quite, um, I would have thought perhaps <laughs> uh, not probable, but time did 
mansion make two of our clients uh, women of the year. Incredible. Mm-hmm. And, and well, Which you, they you, obviously didn't realize until, you know, and we were like, I think you'd heard about it and it was, and that this might be happening. And we were all on tenterhooks to see, because we didn't want, obviously we wanted them to be women of the year. We absolutely. didn't want to do anything to get in the way of it. And did that change, seeing that, did that change your perception of time or did that just make you think that actually that's been a mistake rather than an intentional plan. Uh, no, I mean that's really interesting. That disconnection. Mm. As I said, I still I still know really good people mm. at time who are trying to do really good things. What it really reminded me of is how limited your power is within a system like that, within an yeah, organisation yeah, yeah. like that. So I used to, in my job. So at time I was. Um, I I occupied several different positions. I was senior editor, then I was London bureau chief, then I was Europe editor, which is a a kind of composite job where Mm. you are responsible for the EMEA editions of the magazine, but you're also responsible for reporting out of the region to um, to the mothership, to the the, uh, US uh, edition, Um, and all the editions. And um, then when I was... um, sort of edged out of that Europe editor job, I was so-called promoted to editor at large. So Mm. those were the jobs I held there. But, Mm. you know, certainly as Europe editor, you would think that I would have been able to have quite a significant impact on the content, Mm. you know, in terms of the stuff that that I'm carrying about, like like (laughs) female representation and the more general kind of diversity and equality. And I would indeed get involved every year in these discussions about why there weren't enough women in the time 100 or why there weren't enough women in in person of the year. Um, And I would try at other times also to get more of the stories I thought were important in there. And it was always really difficult. Mm. But there are people doing good things Mm. as evidenced by the decision to make to make those women, the, the University of Rochester women and women, fantastic women like Tarana Burke, yeah. um, to to honour them. That's great, mm. but it's out of step with mm. the organisation itself. Well, you, you're right. And uh, you mentioned two things, which I'm going to come back to Anne on. Uh, the first was, is really about the costs, um, because one of your most famous, I think, uh, cases or, or, or campaigns uh, was with the universities. You just mentioned University of Rochester, but back at Yale a few years ago mm-hmm. um, with Alexander and Yale. Uh, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that was a, a particular turning point, I think it's fair to say. Well, okay, that's a fair example of when I was younger at Yale as an undergraduate, the corporation of Yale, the ruling body of Yale, invited me to do a report on the status of women at the institution. That would have been 10 years after coeducation. Mm. So I investigated this report and we started to see um, a whole series of cases where women, now go back to a time, this is pre-AIDS, women are having a lot of sexual relationships with faculty members. And we then went to the Yale administration and said, you know, there's no central depository where you can actually lodge Mm. this information. So, you know, Yale may have a sexual predator as a professor, but you wouldn't know it because it's all individually reported and there's no catalog. Mm. That's all we want. Yale wouldn't give us that. They then supported the men and said, you know, okay, you know, that's uh, fine. That's what they do. And we're not going to do anything about it. And so um, I organized with a group of other women a case, and we call that behavior sexual harassment. It hadn't been 
argued before, and we brought the first case in education in that area. Now, we lost that case because as we graduated, the court said, you don't have standing to keep that case going. Mm. And so one by one, the plaintiffs fell off. But certainly, uh, the judge also said that these legal theories did constitute sex discrimination under Title IX of the Civil Rights Act. And so we created new law there. And that has been a very powerful instrument. But I will say from my own experience, for what Catherine has gone through, I was just graduating, and certainly at Yale at the time, Yale engaged in a smear campaign on our plaintiffs. And so for me, for instance, I was told, I I only heard, Mm -hmm. but I was publicized to be a lesbian at the time, and also somebody was failing out of Yale. Mm -hmm. Now, it's very, go back many years, to call a woman a lesbian was not something you did out of kindness. It was meant deliberately as a smear. And I happened at the time to be sleeping with the man who was now my husband, (laughs) who actually was pivotal in hiring Catherine. And so he was quite surprised when he heard me. Um, And and Yale put this around. And, And then the other thing about that I was failing out, well, um, I was at the top of my class at Yale. I got a Harvard. I got a, went into Har- admitted to Harvard and Yale mm-hmm. law schools, mm-hmm. and a Marshall and a Rhodes scholarship. So it was actually just the opposite. But for me, it was a coming of age to think that this beloved institution called Yale that I really cared about, just like Catherine and Jeff cared about time. Mm-hmm. You know, you just believed in these institutions, mm-hmm. and to think they could play dirty was really so horrible. So I left there, and I got a lot of name calling, and wasn't a happy time, but I left still loving Yale. Now, of course, I'm 63 years have passed, and now I'm one of Yale's great heroes. You know, so you come back in life, you get seen in a different way. And just a few years ago, when Yale was looking for a new general counsel, members of the corporation came to me and said, would you take on the job? And I said, um, if you really want to be a leader in the academy, if you want to change the world mm-hmm. and make Yale, uh, you know, a good role model for how we can do all the things that have to be done at universities, combat sex discrimination, race discrimination, yep. sexual assault, rape, you know, I'm your girl. And they said, no, we don't want to do that. Still. And I said, I'm not your girl. This will pay you a yeah. lot of money. So I already make a lot of money. Yeah. I have no interest. I'm not motivated by money. So world change, institutions sometimes, you know, change. Yeah. I mean, for Catherine's case, the thing that in a way saddens me if we had gone on with it is that I think there's another issue there that I would have liked to have litigated as a lawyer concerned with social justice, and that's the gender pay gap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because certainly mm-hmm. it was really clear, because my own husband, who saw a lot of salaries and hired a lot of people for time, yeah. and he fought for equality, but certainly, I mean, he himself knew a great changes on gender, you know, gaps between what we were being paid. My own husband's salary by the time you know, he left and where Ka- he, he, Catherine had been, you know, rose above him at time, yeah. bless her. And he was still making far more money than she had been making. There's something really wrong about that. And that really has to be addressed. Uh, well, and across uh, sort of the media, particularly, is really in the spotlight at the moment about gender pay gap issues, about mm. diversity and discrimination generally. Um, we look at the BBC, we look at yeah. uh, sort of, uh, Radio 2 at the moment, big stories about how Chris Evans was paid so much and Zoe Ball's expected to be paid less, and all these other conversations going on still, up and down, in court, out, out of court. Um, I'll mention a, one, one rather famous one because, of course, I co founded the Women's Equality Party with Sandy Topsy. Yeah. who recently discovered that she's paid 60% less than Stephen Fry for presenting um, QI. QI. So there's a couple of things I quickly wanted to Mm. pick up on. I mean, one of them is, you know, we mentioned 
what happened to me is being around a man who was was a problem. But actually, I'm not trying to exonerate him. But for me, it's about the institution and about, you know, you can have one individual who creates problems. But if the if the institution deals with it properly, then it shouldn't be a problem. Um, and so for me, I, I really hope that there is kind of institutional learning there. Mm. There was certainly learning for me. One of the things was around not thinking that the HR department is your friend, mm. um, which is a, a pretty obvious thing, but took me by surprise yeah. to what extent they aren't. I mean, we, in the course of um, this action, uh, because I did it in the States, it's different to what people would expect here. So. Uh, the first part of it went to the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission and then they gave the right to sue and then we followed up on that. At every point, by the mm. way, giving time a chance to settle, which they mm. didn't take. Um, but the EEOC, um, we were able to lodge a, a Freedom of Information request to get the supporting documents that had been supplied to the EEOC. Mm. And some of those are jaw-dropping absolutely jaw-dropping not not just in terms of the perfidy uh, uh, is that how you pronounce it perfidy whatever the word i'm looking for of individuals um but also of the institution yeah. itself and we saw the we saw the conversations that went back and forth about mm. like knowing mm. uh, that people actually warning oh she'll have a case for sex discrimination if you do that you know really oh god yeah I and mean, they did it anyway. And they did it anyway. Even though knowing that Catherine had a strong case and they had investigated it and they knew that they had a bad actor in Matt McAllister, yeah. there's documents to that effect, but they still didn't yeah. relieve her from that. She had to still go through the system to prove it. Um, you mentioned institutions. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about briefly about another institution, uh, the Presidency of the United States. <laughs> um, and you talk about sort of bad actors um, yeah. and, and how the institutions should step in. Do you see any sort of resolution? I, like um, I'll mention your book briefly, uh, Attack of the 50-Foot uh, Women. Um, but you talk uh, in some detail about how Trump came to be president, yeah. despite and in spite of all of the evidence against him, all of the personal um, comments that he's made um, yeah. on record yeah. um, about women, against women, how... how a we can't talk. We've not got time to talk about how it's possible, but how can it be? Can it be resolved in any way? Well, I think, but I think the how it's possible is important and relevant. So, I mean, one of the things is the number of white women who voted for Trump. The fifty-three percent of white women voting for Trump. Mm. That is sort of, you know, one of the arguments in my case potentially was that it couldn't be sex and age discrimination because one of the people involved was Time's first ever <laughs> um, female editor in chief, yeah. uh, who was a woman of about my age. But women are co-opted into these systems very mm. often and don't don't sort of um, understand the the mechanisms because we all kind of teach ourselves to swim in a male-dominated yep. yep. world rather than changing the system, if you like. Mm. So that's one thing. But another thing is about the power of things going public. So Anne mentioned all the calls and support that I got when my story went public. And it went public not of my volition, but because in the States your complaint goes public and the press picked yep. up on it. And then it became a big story. Mm. And that unleashed this flood of 
partly people offering us testimony, um, which was amazing because, you know, all this new support that came forward, but also lots and lots of people who were completely unrelated to this, but saying, oh my God, this sounds like exactly like what's happening to me. Mm. Now that's very analogous to the Me Too movement. Mm. And Trump, of course, you know, there are so many women who've come forward to make the yeah. accusations accusations against him. We know so many other things about him that would question, you know, whether this is in any way a fit or proper person to be in the White House. Mm. But we also see a confusion, you know, these things can't be resolved until they become public. Mm. But the notion that by becoming public, they are resolved is clearly given the lie by the fact that Trump is still unscathed in the White House. And the people who tell us that the Me Too movement has gone too far, when actually almost nobody has had any really serious consequences yeah. arising from it. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from often the women that come forward. Apart from apart from the people yeah. who blow the whistle, exactly. Um, uh, j- just to, uh, I'm afraid I've got to finish off, which is, I, I'm, and I'm going to drag you back another time because there's so much to talk about with you as particularly, both of you. Um, but but with your own case, what was the resolution in the end? Because um, that's now over, you've moved on. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Um, w- what I can say is, yes. that, that <laughs> is, is that there has been an amicable resolution, okay. which I am deeply delighted about. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased. Uh, I'm not pleased that it happened in the first place, of course, but I'm, I'm pleased that it's been amicable. Well, satisfactory. Let's say satisfactory. Uh, you've been able to move on from that. Um, and onto great things. And the Women's Equality Party, I know you mentioned it briefly. Um, we could, again, we could talk a lot more about how we change the world, whether that's through politicians or through lawyers um, or, or a combination of the, the three. I know we have to finish, but can, can I say one more thing that you we didn't get around to? Um, in that, that point about things going public and whether it creates change, we didn't, because we <laughs> I talked too much, we didn't get around to talking about compromise agreements and NDAs. Yeah. And I just wanted to say that this is a really, that this is a really big but really complicated issue. So, you know, Anne and I were talking on the way here, is the problem is the problem with the law or with the application of the law? It's probably both, yeah. but things need to come out in order to be resolved. And, and can I add to that as well, custom and practice. Mm-hmm. People get used to doing things a certain way and it never gets tested. Um, it's only when they get tested that we, we actually start take a step back and say, is this right? Which is, I think, something that both of you have been doing throughout your careers uh, and asking just because this is how we do it, is this the right way to do it? And, uh, and for that, obviously, we applaud you and thank you. Um, and thank you again for your time today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us. No <laughs> problem. The Hearing. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please like us or just follow and subscribe. We also want your feedback, so rate and review us or get in touch using the hashtag The Hearing Podcast. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.